I want to outline some of the highlights of the Gnostic story. In 1986, a book came out called Skywriting by Word of Mouth, written by a man who may be familiar to some of you, uh, who are old enough, uh, John Lennon, a great hero of my childhood in the 19th century. And he wrote in the book that the Christians, in his view, who had the deepest understanding of reality were, are, question mark, the Gnostics. I'm sure that many people who read that book, which is a surrealist collection, uh, wondered who these Gnostics were. I'd like to start probably at the beginning of modern understanding of Gnosticism. In 1945, in Upper Egypt, an Arab camel driver called Muhammad Ali al-Saman and his six brothers were out digging for birdlime beneath the Jabal al-Tarif. And while digging that morning, they discovered a, a large jar, it's almost six foot in, in length, and this rather scared them. The eldest of the brothers, Muhammad Ali, knocked the top off with a, with a mattock, and uh, he saw dust, like gold dust, fly all over the place. And he thought, oh, it's a jinn, a bad spirit, and he was terribly afraid. And they went away a while and dis- sort of discussed among themselves what they were going to do. And then they went back, and out of it, they started pulling these books. They looked at them, and they thought, oh, probably buried 50 years ago or something. And they divided them up amongst themselves. They thought they might be able to sell them to some of the Copts, who uh, were the middle classes who ran Egypt at that time. This discovery took a long time to come to the public notice. It was a discovery of 52 separate uh, texts bound into 13 leather codices. It's the largest collection ever of uh, ancient book-type literature ever discovered. When I first heard about this, I was, I was at college studying theology, and I thought, oh, another discovery of texts, uh, that means more work. But in the years that have followed, I come to think it's a rather extraordinary discovery that at this time these things should be discovered. Anyway, these 52 texts, 46 of them were previously unknown. They had some extraordinary titles, like The Hypostasis of the Archons. One of the books was called The Alien, or Allogenes, which means of another race. There were several Gnostic Gospels, for example, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, and a rather beautiful document called The Gospel of Truth. These documents filtered through over the years into Cairo and didn't really receive academic attention until the very early 50s. In particular, a man called Gillis Quispel, who was a Dutch historian friend of Carl Jung, brought some of them to his house in Holland and kept them for quite a few years. The full collection wasn't published in, in English until 1977. These Gnostic Gospels, what are they all about? Who are the Gnostics? Gnostic, Gnostic, comes from the Greek word gnosis, it means knowledge, uh, not knowledge like um, Encyclopedia Britannica or something like this. It means knowledge of a particular, of a spiritual kind. And the writers of these extraordinary books, which I should say were buried, it is thought, in the middle of the 4th century AD, tell of in an extraordinary series of myths and dialogues from what they call the living Jesus, a concept of man's place in the world, who he is, where he's come from, and where he's going to. That the Gnostics, uh, the Gnostics think many, many different things. It was a great sign of originality among them, a great sign that they, they could produce their own works. Uh, rather like sort of artists today, aren't really taken seriously unless they can produce something original. Originality at that time was not, not so well encouraged. People thought it was more important to go along with tradition. But these people got up and uh, wrote their own books. I say the idea is very different. What they present to us is a situation where the world, our world, has come about through a kind of tragedy, a collapse of a primal being, original God, pre-existing in a perfection, for some reason or other, which is various accounts are given of, lets loose into the all, into great space, a material creation. 
and man comes from, it is thought that man's original nature comes from God and has somehow got imprisoned in a great cosmic mess. That's what the universe is to many Gnostics. Which gives rise to the feeling of alienation, of separateness, of somehow belonging to another world. It seems to be a very strong feeling among the Gnostics that they belonged not in space and time, but that somehow they had some kind of consciousness that they were from another dimension altogether. These were ideas which appeared in the Christian church in the second century, when many of the books were probably originally composed. Mm. And as you might expect, they, these ideas were not greeted with a great amount of joy, because the Gnostics held that you didn't need bishops, and you didn't need churches, and you really didn't need much organized worship, and you certainly didn't need creeds or very established beliefs. Once you experienced Gnosis, you knew where you'd come from, who you were, and what your destiny was, and in that sense, you were free. And the Gnostics prized this spiritual freedom very greatly, and it gave birth to a tremendous amount of poetry and visionary experiences. The church was not very pleased about this. It got in the way of things. The church at this time was under great pressure. Mid-second century, you had uh, the persecutions in, in Lyon and uh, Marcus Aurelius. Christians were every day being put to get death in the arenas, and, and I'm sure that everybody's seen some films or other which, which show how painful that could be. So it, was, you know, it was very necessary at that time for the, the Christians to be able to identify themselves and say who's in the movement and who isn't. And you had these Gnostics, these people who got some kind of extra insight that they came from somewhere else. Do they really belong amongst us? And it was decided, uh, particularly by a bishop, his name is Irenaeus, that they didn't belong and that these people were in, dwelling in an abyss of madness and blasphemy and that they really ought to shut up or get out of the church. After he wrote five volumes of refutation uh, against the Gnostics, I think the Catholic Church at that time, the Universal Church in the Mediterranean, felt that probably we've got rid of this Gnostic threat. But Gnosticism seems to have persisted. And by the late 4th century, there must have been a coterie of Gnostics, perhaps not totally Gnostic, but uh, perhaps associated with a nearby monastery, one of the very first monasteries ever, ever uh, founded. It would appear that in about 367, the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, who, who gave us the Athanasian Creed, uh, wrote a letter to the head of this monastery, Theodore, and said that, uh, you know, you've got to get rid of these apocryphal books. We don't, you know... Here is the canon of literature which is accepted as Christian, ordained as true, which is the Bible as we know it. And anything else is going to be destroyed, because I, I or one of my agents is going to come down and sort you out. And it's probably from this time that these incredible books were buried. And it might have appeared at that point that uh, Gnosticism was finished. I think the church would have been much happier if it had. But Gnostic ideas seem to have persi persisted. Now, there's a great deal of evidence of, of how these ideas persisted. Uh, there was the growth of the Manichaean church, uh, starting in the 3rd century, which incorporated many Gnostic ideas. But generally, the whole stream of Gnostic ideas and its spiritual experience tends to go underground. I, I would think that the next great resurgence of Gnosis knowledge, spiritual knowledge, awareness of that man is a spiritual being in a world with which he is not, in which he is not completely at home. The next, the next great stage, I would say, is in the Middle Ages. In the year 1163, a council of bishops was <coughs> held at Tours, uh, where it said that a new heresy was spreading in Gascony and Provence, in the south of France, was spreading like a cancer. By 1190, the Pope decided that these people were anathema and uh, had better change their ways fairly soon. The people came to be known as the Cathars. 
from the Greek katharos, hence our word um, catharsis, and it means usually often translated as uh, pure, um, pure ones, but I think in this day and age, of, and it's probably better to see them as describing themselves as unpolluted, because they didn't want to get messed up in the world. They believed the world was a, a product, was a creation of a false god, who they called the Rex Mundi, the lord of this world, who really has got, he kind of runs the board of directors of the evil angels that keep man's spiritual nature under control. This message, which probably sounds quite strange, uh, cultish even, did spread very uh, quickly in uh, the Languedoc, partly because there was a great, uh, there was an atmosphere of freedom in the late 12th century in Languedoc, which was the time the troubadours, your first pop stars, if you like, were active in the Languedoc at this time. There were, one of the things about Gnosticism, it gave a great deal of equality to women. And women were allowed to partake, participate in Cathar ceremonies and were held as spiritual equals. You see. And again, I, I think this, this raised the ire of the, of the church and, and the authorities. There were many powerful women in Languedoc at this time who owned land and uh, had a great deal of influence. Other beliefs of the Cathars, we can say was uh, maybe of some interest, they were, they were vegetarians, they uh, didn't believe in killing, you shouldn't kill, rather like the, a Buddhist attitude, you mustn't, you mustn't kill, you must... Uh, you must love. They believed that they were the true Christians, the good Christians. They, they, they wanted to love, they didn't want to hate, they didn't want to kill. Uh, they wanted to, to essentially to find a spiritual life within, with, through the understanding of which they would be able to leave the world uh, as soon as possible. They had a, they had a ceremony called the Consulamentum, uh, whereby the believing Qatar, the person who had learned their doctrines and ideas, underwent a kind of um, initiation. Uh, men and women went through this experience. Afterwards, they regard themselves as having been freed from the, from the devil. But they weren't free from the interests of the papacy, which, who in concert with the French crown and a power-grabbing northern baron, who were rather keen to get down yeah, get, get down on these um, rather soft, this, very, this lovely culture in Languedoc, it's got so much money, the women are running around free, uh, it's very peaceful and they wanted to get their hands on it. And here was a great opportunity to do so. The place was active, alive with heretics, so you could actually, if you fought against the heretics, you could, you could have all your debts put in abeyance while you went off to kill heretics. And sure enough, in 1209, Simon de Montfort's army assembled in Lyon, and they proceeded to sack Bézier, at which there's a quite remarkable, um, probably apocryphal story of how the papal legate Arnold Amory said, he was asked, you know, how do we tell who are the heretics uh, from who are the not heretics, you know? And he said, uh, kill them all, God will know his own. And they did. The army proceeded to ransack Languedoc. They took a series of castles, and the Cathars, wherever they were found, were, uh, were burnt, men and women. There were, these really were the first holocausts of European history. There were 140 burned in a single day at the town of Minerve. There were 400 burned at Lavour. Uh, the last stage of the crusade, it took a long time to, to break the power of the nobility of of, of Languedoc, who, who defended the Cathars. They, even people who were not believing Cathars, even Catholics, looked on these people as holy men, spiritual people that they should protect, and they were huddled into the castles and, 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 and looked after, and people would fight and die on behalf of, the, of these holy men and women. Uh, the climax of what's been called the Albigensian Crusade was the taking of the castle of Montségur, which uh, I've been to. is an absolutely fantastic place. Many of you go down the south of France and, and can avoid Saint-Tropez for a while. Go, go into Languedoc and uh, go into the mountains of the Ariège, and there on this fantastic mountain there's a tiny little castle, it's like a shoebox, and this was really the last ditch stand of the Cathars and their, their defenders. 
The castle was taken after a very long siege, and 225 Cathars were burned in a single day at the bottom of that mountain. But Catharism still persisted. It wasn't the total end, but it, it essentially dies down after that because the nobles were no longer in a position to defend the Cathars, and many of them fled to Italy, taking with them what has been called the treasure of Monsegur, which is almost certainly the Cathars' bank because they were they're well endowed with money. Uh, the nobles wanted to look after them. And again, so this Gnostic Christianity, again, dispersed and put aside, and history could move on to another, another stage. I would say the next highlight of, of the Gnostic story, as I see it, comes some 200 years later, when in 1460, to try and move your minds to the period of the early Renaissance, um, Constantinople has recently fallen, and there's uh, a great deal of new material coming in from, from the East into Western Europe. One of the buyers of this new material was, a, was an artistic patron, Cosimo de' Medici. He had heard in a church council of the existence of certain texts attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. That's thrice greatest Hermes. And this chap, Hermes Trismegistus, was uh, thought to, frankly, know everything. We know that the works, in fact, were written in the second century. In 1460, Leonardo of Pistoia, who's a monk, uh, arrived at the court of Cosimo and said, I've got them, I've got the texts. Cosimo was absolutely delighted. He was, he was near to death. The complete works of Plato were ready on the press to be printed that his court philosopher, Marsilio Ficino, had, had put a great deal of work into. And he said, forget the Plato, I want to read the corpus, the body of works called the Corpus Hermeticum. I want to read that first before I die. There might be something in it that I need to know. And this was duly done. Cosimo died presumably happier than he might otherwise have done. These texts then circulated amongst the Neoplatonic Academy of, of Florence and exercised immense fascination. This chap, Hermes Trismegistus, was thought to have been an ancient sage either of the same time as Moses or just slightly afterwards or even some people thought before. Plato was thought to have uh, drunk from the wisdom of Hermes Trismegistus and they thought they had here what they called the religio mentis, the religion of the mind, the religion of the world, the foundation, the essential light, the basic material that was the foundation of all religious consciousness that had been poured into these works, the Corpus Hermeticum. He was called Hermes because this, this mythical figure was a kind of incarnation of the god Hermes, who, you know, has wings on his head, right, the mind can ascend to heaven, and wings on his feet, and he... He, he moves from matter to spirit. It's a great concept in Gnosticism is the idea of duality, in particular material duality, uh, the material world and the spiritual world. Man belongs in the, to the spiritual world, is temporarily engaged through his body uh, with the uh, material world. And uh, Hermes was the symbol of transport from one dimension to another. And as you can imagine, in, in this period before space flights, uh, Hermes, of course, is also called Mercury, Mercurius, Trismegistus. Long before space flights, th this, this was thought to hold, hold the secret keys whereby man could ascend through an inner contemplation to a corresponding sense of unity with the one, the great all that they believed was the foundation of all reality. And the centre of the all was God, and this was the keys to reaching God. Man had originally enjoyed a... Uh, a relationship with God, but this, this relationship had been broken, and the hermetic tracts were thought by some scholars and artists to be, to be the keys to get out of this, this mess. And these texts, as I say, exercised great fascination, spread very, very rapidly. One of the first major scholars 
to pick up on them was um, the Count of Concordia, the Count of Peace, says Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, who was a, was a young genius. He was uh, a man of incredible intellectual attainments. He, as far as the learning of his time was, he'd pretty well mastered the lot. You should see his library list. It's quite phenomenal. I very much doubt if there's anybody in Oxford today who's mastered the, the same breadth of material that he had. He, at age 24, he issued a, a summons to every intellectual knight errant of, of, of the world of that time to come to Florence to debate 900 theses, which was pretty good for a, for a uh, 24-year-old then as any time. He, he's a very attractive man, had long blonde hair and an angelic face. And I've seen a portrait of him. He's absolutely unmissable in the church of San Ambrogio in, in Florence. But the knight errants never came. The Pope had got wind of some of these theses and set up a committee to investigate them committees duly investigated and they found that uh, 13 specimen theses were heretical and Pico had to flee Florence even, even Lorenzo de' Medici Cosmo's son could not protect him from, from the papal interference now the opening speech that he was going to give to these theses was, has come down to what's called the Aratio, the Oration on the Dignity of Man and this work has been called the Manifesto of the Renaissance uh, a totally new concept of man is, is well, new, they thought, to the time. Concept of man is, is adumbrated, and his starting text is uh, Magnum, miracu- Magnum Miraculo Homo Est, a great miracle is man. Among the texts discovered at Nag Hammadi uh, in 1945 was this particular text, the Asclepian Dialogue, it's called, a dialogue between Hermes and a pupil Asclepius. This idea of man was, was quite astonishing. Suddenly man had the freedom to move up and down the ladder of creation as he willed. He could make of his destiny what he willed. He didn't necessarily need the strictures of the church. He was free to choose for himself whether he would be brute and uh, uh, kick people in and attack old women or be a god and ascend in his vision and his insight to the highest levels of, of consciousness and understanding. And this work was, was very popular and the 16th century has been called to some extent the hermetic century. You can feel it if you read some of Shakespeare's new feeling about man's ability, which of course has two sides. Pico would say that uh, man's advance depends on his spiritual understanding, not simply on the, on the will, to, will to advance. Probably the, the greatest hermetic, this hermetic scholar uh, of the period uh, was a man called Giordano Bruno, who was born in 1548 by Nola in Vesuvius in Italy. He believed that this, these, they thought these books had come from Egypt, ancient Egypt, held the, a new vision of the future, and he, he went around Europe promulgating a sort of gospel of, of hermetic Egyptianism, uh, which would lead to the renovation of the world and the end of all religious divisions, because, you know, the 16th century was full of Catholics beating up Protestants and so on, and as we still see today. And they believed that the, the essential spiritual truth in the hermetic writings would sort of wipe all that away. There'd be a new world, and, and man would be able to walk free again. The air would be clean, and, and the stench of bodies, you know, far away, and, and great possibilities would open up. Uh, he wrote a book, fantastic book, uh, which I should say is you cannot, it's very difficult to get hold of now, like so many of these works. It was called On the Infinite Universe and Worlds. And this is the level of inspiration he'd reached. And he, he was one of the first to adopt Copernican theory that uh, uh, the, wor- the Earth went around the sun. But he does this, he, d- he does this. Um, you know, Copernicus on uh, the page at which he says that the sun is the centre of, of the solar system says uh, that... Well, it's as Trismegistus says, you know, because the sun was a Gnostic symbol of unity in the cosmos and in the human being. 
Uh, Bruno takes this even further and posits innumerable universes, innumerable worlds, that the, ours is not the only one, and, the, you know, and suddenly the universe is starting to expand, and, and God, you know, if it looked easy in 1460, by 1600 things were looking a bit more complicated. The, again, the church didn't like Bruno's views, and I'm sad to say that he was burnt at the stake in 1600 as an impenitent heretic. He didn't keep his mouth shut. These, these Gnostic ideas really start coming under suspicion in the late 16th century. And the early 17th, we, ha- we have the phenomenon of the witch trials. And uh, Gnostics, uh, Gnostic thought, though it didn't always go by that name, was definitely suspect. It was, it was a time of backlash. It was a time of conservatism. It was a time of, my God, what, where have we gone to? I mean, I, I personally think it's not totally dissimilar to the situation after the 19, uh, 1960s and 70s. Again, we have, we, it's a backlash. You know, people have gone too far. I can't think too... These weird ideas, you know, weird heresies, and it's time to go back to simple, simple things. But of course, you know, you can never stop the flow. These Gnostic ideas in the 17th century start to go underground, and uh, it tends to be then a, an interest of scholars and artists, notably uh, William Blake, who saw this Gnostic false god, their idea of a... F- people, th- th- one of the Gnostic ideas is that uh, people have a false image of God, you know, it's not... I don't think they necessarily believe there were two gods, the perfect father, and then there's this false god who makes the world. It's more that we got our image wrong, and we're obsessed with images, and we don't penetrate the image and find out what's real. Blake uses the Gnostic idea of, of the false god to indicate abstract reason, which he felt in the late uh, 18th century was, had usurped the harmony of the human mind and was beginning to... He saw it manifest in the Industrial Revolution and increased mechanisation and hordes of people being poured into factories and working on machines and they don't know what it means and, the, and underpaid and impoverished and so on and so on. And he saw uh, that this age of reason was in fact not a, an enlightenment but more of a blackout. He foresaw a time when, when this period of disharmony would fade away and a spiritual understanding of man, his nature and the universe would, would start to appear again. He calls this concept Jerusalem which means spiritual liberty. And I'd just like to end now with a question whether, ask yourselves whether Blake was right in that.